Hey there everyone, and welcome back to The Longest Night. We are a Game of Thrones show on the Podbreed Network, and we work with our friends at the Narth subreddit as well. My name is Rob, and I've seen every single episode of Game of Thrones at least half a dozen times. And my name is Lizzie, and I'm watching Game of Thrones for the very first time. You can find us on Twitter, and you can find us on Etsy as well. Uh, Both of our pages on those websites are at LongestNightGOT. That is at LongestNightGOT. We're selling Longest Night pin badges for Dead Cheap on our Etsy page. Uh, I always leave links in the show notes and description anyway, so if you're interested in following us on Twitter or buying a little pin badge, then you can just go there. Uh, title music was provided by friend of the podcast, Edward Thomas. Uh, you can find all of his available work in the show notes too. This week we are going to be discussing... Season 6, Episode 4 of Game of Thrones, entitled Book of the Stranger. It was written by series creators David Benioff and Dan Weiss, and directed by Daniel Sackheim, and it was first broadcast on the 15th of May, 2016, to an audience of 7.82 million people. Um, I should say, as well, that these uh, figures I'm reeling off are just based on American households that watched it at 9pm on the Sunday. I think if you were to start adding international viewing figures to Game of Thrones, I think it would be exceeding 15 million at this point. So I maybe maybe further. So I just wanted to clarify that because a lot of the, a lot of the numbers don't really make sense um, with regards to how big the show was and how comparatively tiny the viewing figures seem. But I just wanted to clear that up. Um, Lizzie, what do we make of Book of the Stranger? It's a great episode. Yeah, yes um, it is. Aside from aside from a couple of locations, you do notice a very obvious theme of reunions between characters who've been separated for a number of seasons, but that feels essential for a show that's entering its final stretch and there's a lot of loose ends left to tie up. Yes, um, I, I agree. I think this is a really excellent episode speaks to how much I like season six, that this maybe just makes it into my top half for episodes I really like. Um, wow, okay. I think that it provides realistic and workable alternatives to all of the misery that dominated the end of season five. Um, loads of family yeah. reunions, both literal and figurative. Um, lots of characters on missions to reclaim something, whether it's theirs or whether it's something that they want. Um, and it also, just give a special mention, before, at the top of the show, um, contains my favourite Jonathan Price scene in the whole show. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, I've been looking forward to talking about this one. I think this is um, this is the, one of the stronger episodes of the season, um, and I've always had it earmarked when we've been doing the show. I've had this uh, earmarked out for quite a while now. I think this was one that, when I first watched it, I was like, yeah, that was pretty good, I liked that a fair bit, and I'm excited for next week, and then... I remember doing my rewatch in between season seven and eight, and suddenly this episode just clicked with me in a way that it hadn't really before. And I thought, yeah, this is excellent. I don't like it as much as uh, Home, for yeah, reasons we'll fine. get into. But I, yeah, I think it's really, really strong. I think they'll be safe here if Roose Bolton remains warden of the North. Sansa. Winterfell is our home. It's ours. And Arya's and Bran's and Rickon's, wherever they are, it belongs to our family. We have to fight for it. I'm tired of fighting. 
It's all I've done since I left home. I've killed brothers of the Night's Watch. I've killed wildlings. I've killed men that I admire. I hanged a boy. Younger than Bran. I've fought. And I lost. After being released from his Night's Watch vows on a technicality after his death, Jon makes plans to head south. However, before he can pack up his things, Sansa, Brienne and Podrick arrive at the castle, and Sansa and Jon are reunited. Brienne takes the opportunity to tell Davos and Melisandre that she personally executed Stannis Baratheon. Uh, after a brief catch-up, Sansa attempts to convince Jon to retake Winterfell from the Boltons, but Jon, who is tired of fighting and is still emotionally recovering from being killed, uh, refuses. Uh, Sansa tells Jon that she'll retake Winterfell with or without his help, and then it, later on that day or that week, uh, a letter arrives from Ramsay, who is boasting that he's got Rickon locked up in his dungeon, and he threatens to wipe out all the wildlings that are currently residing south of the Wall, and Sansa tries to convince Jon again to fight, and this time uh, he accepts, because the odds have changed and the situation has developed. Um, I loved your message to me quite early on. I, I, I always sort of wait for that text on a Saturday or a Sunday morning when you first watch the episode <laughs> to see what you think yeah. about. And I was sort of expecting it to be like, oh, you got up early and watched the whole episode because I was still in bed. And I looked at my phone and it was that picture of Kermit with love hearts all around him. And you're going, yeah. oh, Sansa and John. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's the first big thing in this episode. What did you make of that? It's a huge thing. It's one of the biggest things of, well, of the show so far. And like, like, we're talking about characters who haven't been together since, um, what is it, season one, episode two. And even then, yes. it was, they might have been together for a couple of seconds. They didn't have a conversation like, I know John yeah. had the leaving conversation with Arya. Yes. Yeah. But, yeah, it's one of the sweetest moments of the entire show. And it's a, it's a bit of a relief because I was convinced that John was going to leave Castle Black just before Sansa turned <laughs> yeah. up. Lots of people were worried that that was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> because they always do it. They've always done that ships in the night thing. Yes. They did it with um, Bran in um, The Reigns of Castamere. Yeah, they did it with Bran twice, actually. Because uh, they that, did it again true. in season yeah. four. Arya and Rob, uh, yeah. Arya and Catelyn. Yeah, so mm -hmm. I can see why you were worried that they were going to deny it um, again. But they don't deny it. And instead, that you get this really lovely reunion. And even then, I'd say, does, well, there is a lot of reunions in this episode. This is the only one that's sort of sweet, but with a tinge of danger. The rest of them are kind of, like, sad. You know what I mean? Mm, they're not totally. They're not happy reunions. They're, like, it's, you know, the world around them has changed and their relationship can never be the same as it was. Mm. And that's still kind of the case for um, Sansa and John, but there is genuine love there still. Yeah, I think that, like you were saying there, the, the sweetness of the of the moment. I love, it's the, the sweetness comes afterwards. I think the initial reunion, though, is kind of tinged with shock and a bit of desperation, where yeah. they've both been through such horrible and traumatic experiences and that they can't really believe that either of them have stumbled back into each other's lives and all of the stuff that they go through. And I, I kind of love... This is something that the show starts doing, I think, in quite a big way. David Benioff and Dan Weiss are not big fans of characters recounting their experiences to each other. 
Yeah. Doing a whole, yeah. like... And uh, they, they skip over the bit where John tells Santa that he was killed and brought back to life. Because <laughs> um, mm. he, he sort of makes a little <laughs> reference to it where he goes, I can't stay here, not after what happened. And Sansa just kind of rolls with it and is like, yeah, I understand that. Because I don't think we really need to see John sort of try and convince Sansa that, like, I'm not mental. I was killed. Yeah. And I am... I, yeah, I'm, yeah. I think, you know, that it means that we skip to the bit where there's a there's a joint understanding between them and there's a mutual understanding where they they clearly don't... You know, John and Sansa were not as close as John and Arya were, or even John and no. Rob. Sansa mm. was very much like mummy's little girl, has no time for the bastard brother of hers. But the way that they apologize to each other and say, like, Sansa's like, Jesus, that must have been awful. And John's like, well, I was always really miserable and I was very mopey, so I can't have been much fun either. So, And it's the way that they acknowledge that yeah, they made some mistakes, but now, and for the first time, I would say that, I mean, obviously you get the letter from Ramsay later on, but I think this is the first time that Sansa could call herself genuinely safe for five seasons. Yeah, I would agree. The, the very start of the show is the last time that Sansa felt security and safety like that, which all comes through in the hug. I have seen the hug... Uh, Many, many times, um, I still can't quite bear it. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, it's it's one of the more emotional. I think like, I think this is probably the biggest reunion we've had so far. Even though the character, even though it's technically, it's not really a reunion because we've never seen them on screen together before, and yet it feels. You know how like, we were saying in season five where Sansa and Theon never really had any scenes together in season one, but then being in the same place all of a sudden in season five, I was like, oh, oh, that's interesting. And it was a real, yeah, it yeah. was really indicative of how rich the characters are on this show and how much you are constantly aware of their history. And mm -hmm. this feels the same way, where there, doesn't, there are no words said in the initial scene where Sansa and Jon reunite with each other. It's just all through eye movements and John recognising the colour of Sansa's hair when she's in mm. the courtyard and things like that. And it's all these things that are left unspoken and it's like they've both been through so much that any quibbles that they may have had in the past, it's just forgotten about. They've all been through far too much since they left Winterfell. Exactly, yeah. The the scene that they have together um, where John says, you know, never should have left Winterfell and Sansa agrees... What do you make of John at the moment? Just um, how he is at the moment. He seems um, still kind of... I, I don't, maybe defeated isn't the word, but he's still... Um, like It's like he's in shock from what's happened and yeah. the emotions aren't there yet. You know, sometimes that happens when like a shocking event happens in your life and it takes you a while to process those emotions. And I feel like John is in that point at the minute he's just sort of he's like there are times where you feel like he's just frozen and it's i'm, I'm sorry I'm, I'm rambling here but no no that's i I'm, I'm enjoying the the rambling because i think rambling is how you arrive at a point um but <laughs> another theme that comes through in this episode that i've picked up on before is 
I would say, I said people on a mission before, but it's mainly women on a mission in this episode, I think. And yeah, Sansa true. is a woman on a mission where she has very little time. She's very, you know, she's happy to be with John, and she's more than happy to, you know, be with him and to look out for him and to use Castle Black as a, a brief stopover point. But she's like, listen, my actual mission is to go back to Winterfell and, like, we, we need to take it back. We need to mm. this huge wilding army you've got outside your gates. Let's you know let's let's do something. Let's go. It's ours. Like and it's she is done playing games, and I think she's done being a little girl. I think she's she's done with all of this now. It's like she's been brutalized by too many people, and she's been abused by too many people. And it's like right, I'm going to tell you what's mine now, and no yeah. one's going to stand in my way of doing this. And John is. She, I wouldn't say that John is a pawn in Sansa's game here, but he does have to get dragged in a little bit. He, he, does, he, he needs a bit reluctant. to convince him. Yeah, yeah, he is very reluctant to. Um, he, he does get dragged through it a little bit, but and I think as well the key moment that really seals this for me is when John is reading the letter from from Ramsay, mm-hmm. and he stops at the point where. The Ramsey basically says, "Look, I'm gonna get my soldiers to gang rape Sansa, essentially." Yeah. Because John's like, "Oh, I don't, you know, not going to read this to my younger sister." And then Sansa's like, "Fuck it, then I'll read it." And yeah. she just drives right through it, and it's like she's sort of she's past the point of being scared of this stuff anymore because it's already happened to her. Yeah. And it's it's something that she said at the end of last season, isn't it? Where it's like, if I'm gonna die, it might as well be while I'm still myself. And That's so, very true. Yeah. yeah, she's she's definitely on a mission, and it's like the monster's taken our home, and we're gonna go and claim it back from him. Um, just a little thing before we move on. Um, the Brienne Davos Melisandre thing was really funny to me because it's just so, it's so awkward, and it's like Brienne looks at Melisandre as like, oh, gonna go and kick her when when she's down. <laughs> I killed Stannis, <laughs> and then just drops the mic yeah, and walks if- away. It is a little bit like, nice to meet you. Oh, by the way, I, I killed your king. <laughs> How do you like me now? In case you didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, see you later. <laughs> I bring good news. My friends in the north tell me Sansa has escaped Winterfell. I expect she's headed to Castle Black where her brother serves as Lord Commander. But she won't be safe there. Not with the Boltons after her. She's my cousin. We should help her. That was my instinct as well. Our Lord has spoken. Gather the Knights of the Vale. The time has come to join the fray. In the Vale, Littlefinger returns, and Jon Royce is training Robin Arryn in archery, and over the course of this scene, Littlefinger gifts a falcon to Robin for his name day and manipulates the situation so that he can assume control over the Vale instead of Jon Royce, and Littlefinger informs Robin that Sansa's escaped Winterfell, but that she's still not safe, and Robin agrees to uh, allow the Knights of the Vale to come to Sansa's aid, should she ever ever need them. Um, th- I-, I love this scene. I think this is great. I don't know about you. What do you think? Yeah, I I really like this as well. I did have a bit of a chuckle at Robin Arryn and his much deeper voice and <laughs> much more teenage appearance since the last time we saw him, but... That's that's one of my favourite things about the show is that you watch the younger characters like Robin and Bran and Arya and Rickon like growing in real time and mm. 
it's something that other shows do, but it's obviously going to happen when you have younger characters, but it does give you that better sense of a passage of time than with most of the adult characters. You look at, I don't know, you look at Littlefinger and it could have been like five years or five minutes. Mm. You look at someone like Robin and it's clear that time has passed between now and the last time we saw him. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that maybe that's the thing with all of these uh, character reunions and character returns, which is that Bran, Rickon and Robin Arryn, all of their actors have gone through that phase of being like 13 to 15 Yes, and all of a sudden, they the all look much older. It's it's like in um, it's like the um, just as a, the one I'm thinking of is the difference between all of the, especially the boys, in the third and fourth Harry Potter films, where yeah, yeah. in the third Harry Potter film they've all got these neat little boyish haircuts, and then in and then in the fourth film they've all got like these like neck length like. Jonas Brothers style kind of like sweep cuts and they've all grown right, up a lot yeah. and all of their voices have dropped. It's really funny. Um, and yeah, this is this is an, another one of those instances. Um, my favourite thing about this scene um, is the falcon. I, I love the, yeah. the, the falcon is so creepy to me. I find it so, it's sort of disorientated in this very strange way where like, the more tense the scene gets, the more aware I am of the noises that the falcon is making. Like, mm. it's... I mean, it's in a cage, and it's not a danger to anybody, but it just... You get that little sense that it it may attack somebody at any moment. It's just... And they keep... The camera keeps going back to it, and they keep focusing on it. And it's like... It's got <laughs> this, like, beady eye, and it's got a slightly evil look in its eye, and Robin is, like, infatuated with it. And it's... Again, it, it, I don't know what it is about going to the Vale, but the Vale, all of the scenes in the Vale that we've had in the show, they're just so weird. There's just it's this true. weird energy to them, and I think the Falcon is part of it, where it's like, it's like it, it's, it's the bomb under the table, but it said it's, it's a bird in a cage, and the louder the bird gets, the more threatened Jon Royce's life is in the way that manip- uh, Littlefinger manipulates Robin into basically deciding for himself what Littlefinger wants to do with the um that was my instinct as well and yeah I I love I love the Falcon what what further notes do you have about uh Littlefinger back in the game well you say that about the Falcon I was thinking that about Robin yes yeah like particularly how easy he is to manipulate and how you know as much as he's still very much a young boy you get the sense that one wrong turn, and he could turn into another Joffrey or another Ramsay. Yeah, make the bad man fly. He was very. He had a bit of a bloodlust, even from being a nine-year-old. Oh, he did. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah, but it's true. I mean, he's softened a little bit as he's grown up. Um, and he's still useless at archery. Um, <laughs> but I do love how Littlefinger manages to switch the odds at the start of the scene, where Jon Royce is like, "Hmm, bit suspicious that you were going to the Fingers," and then Sansa ended up at Winterfell, and then instead of Littlefinger going, "Uh." Uh, well, he goes, well, you were the only person who knew where we were going. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I I think it's just an example of this episode, again, bringing characters back into the fold and bringing characters back together, but also doing quite a lot with quite a short space of time. This is one scene, and yet I remember it really well. And I think it's just, they managed to capture the atmosphere of the eerie, even when they're not there, they're just in the veil. 
Yeah, and and like the veil itself, I, I can sort of picture it in my mind now. It's sort of lush and green, and mm. it's like I don't know. It's um, you get sort of Robin Hood vibes from it. Yes, um, I think when I think of this scene, there's lots of greens and silvers and lots of very yes, yeah. muted turquoise colours and yeah like a teal colour almost those mm. are the colours that come up in my mind and it's definitely helped by Jon Royce's incredible suit of armour that breastplate yes you could oh, yeah. you could knock down a house with it I think if you swung it <laughs> enough but yeah no <laughs> slavery will never return to marine but she will give the other cities of slavers bay time to adjust to the new order what does that mean? Instead of abolishing slavery overnight, we will give you seven years to end the practice. Slaveholders will be compensated for the losses, of course, at fair prices. In exchange, you will cut off your support for the sons of the harpy. We do not support the sons of the harpy. Fine, fine, but you will cut it off all the same. In Mirene, despite objections from Missande and Grey Worm, Tyrion arranges a meeting with the slave masters of Slaver's Bay and Volantis, and he proposes a deal that will allow the masters seven years to replace slavery with another method of making money, and Tyrion agrees to compensate the masters for their losses. A group of former slaves confront Tyrion soon after, and they oppose any form of negotiation with the masters. Grey Worm and Missande reluctantly support Tyrion in public, but privately they sort of have a go at him for thinking that the Masters will not just use him like they use everybody else. Um, the Marine stuff is pretty good this week. Um, the only thing, I guess, I mean, it's good to see Tyrion doing stuff in rooms again, like mm-hmm. arguing with nobles and negotiating and stuff. Again, it reminds me a little bit of season two Tyrion. Um, yeah, yeah. But... I think they've done what could have been quite a nice little complex storyline in quite quick, broad strokes. I think this is an example of the episode maybe doing quite a lot in little time when I would have appreciated a bit more patience or a couple more scenes. But I think the material is good. What about you? Yeah, I kind of felt like they'd they'd thrown two or three episodes worth of material in Marine into essentially one scene pasted together it felt it felt quite odd hmm yeah um but yeah is it and it's it's kind of um it's in contrast to the rest of the episode where it feels like we're talking about preparations for another war and Tyrion's trying to bargain for peace essentially yeah i think that having Tyrion there doing his stuff again i yeah, like i said before i think you know that there's some good lines that he comes up with in the little negotiations, like, um, let us sail on the tide of freedom instead of being drowned by it. And mm. I I find it an interesting little narrative twist that Tyrion hasn't gone forward with the plan to abolish slavery. It's like he's tried to step into Daenerys' shoes, where Daenerys has three dragons, where it's like, abolish slavery or I will kill you. Yeah, Tyrion doesn't really have that at his disposal, so it's more like, listen here's a compromise, let's work towards a better solution. And mm-hmm. I get it, but, like, I think Grey Worm and Missandei are sort of right. Um, Tyrion sort of needs to to use a maybe a, a bit of a dated phrase from about four or five years ago on social media. Tyrion needs to check his privilege in this situation. Uh, um, yeah. He's probably correct, that, you know, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't sting. And I just, I don't think he quite sympathises with 
Missandei and Grey Worm in the way that I think is the I, I, it just feels a little bit like he's using Grey Worm and Missandei a little bit to sort of as pawns so that he can kind of get towards a solution in the end and yeah I do get that sense yeah and like I get that you know Grey Worm and Missandei are very much like listen we've been slaves we are slaves we know what it's like it and we're horrified that you would allow people to live like this for another seven years. Whereas Tyrion's very much taking the big big picture trolley problem approach where it's like, yeah, I, I agree. Like, slavery should be ended right now, but we're not really in a position to do that right now. So let's try another way. And I think that they're both kind of right, but I think that the show necessarily in some ways and maybe a bit unnecessarily in others, I think it just sort of simplifies it a little bit too much where yeah. it's it's acknowledged that it's a complicated situation, but I think allowing itself to work through complicated political things is not really what the show does anymore. It's not the no. show's MO anymore. It, this isn't season two where there's lots of exactly. time to sit around and chat. This is like mm-hmm. high stakes, 20 episodes to go, you know, like, let's, you know. and, and So I think it's just... A different show i think that's yeah two seasons ago i think we maybe would have spent this maybe would have been a storyline for a season yeah instead absolutely. of a storyline for an episode but the the larger storyline is Tyrion trying to run marine rather than Tyrion trying to end slavery um mm-hmm. and it's it's pretty good material but i can understand why some people would look at this and say mm, could have made this a bit more complicated because we know you've done it in the past yeah, so this comes off as, like, slavery for all. Okay, no slavery for anybody. <laughs> slavery for some. Miniature Min- Daenerys flags for others. Yeah. <laughs> Miniature Targaryen flags for others. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably going to need to link to that Simpsons scene in the in the show notes just to make, sh- just to in- to make sure that people don't think that we're sort of advocating a compromise in this situation. The fine food that had already started to turn. I saw it with perfect clarity and saw what my sins were. The gold I had, the wine I drank, the women I used, my ceaseless struggle to maintain my position. It's all part of a story. A story I was telling myself about who I was. In King's Landing, Marjorie is brought before the High Sparrow, who recounts his past life and tells her the story of how he became a member of the Faith, and Marjorie's then allowed to see Loras, who is slowly breaking from the abuse that he's suffering at the hands of the Sparrows. Cersei then meets with Tommen, who says that he's reluctant to provoke the High Sparrow. Tommen mentions that Marjorie will soon be asked to perform uh, a Walk of Atonement. Cersei then relays this information to Kevin and Lady Olenna, Uh, And Lady Olenna is horrified at the thought that Marjorie would be humiliated and pledges the uh, Tyrell army to help defeat the Sparrows. Um, Yeah, my favourite Jonathan Price scene in the whole show in this episode. Uh, What did you make of King's Landing this week? I thought it was really good, but I'm curious to hear more of why it's your favourite High Sparrow scene. That monologue is just fantastic. I... Yeah. I think that the relationship between his eyes and the camera is beautiful. I mean, it's a good story anyway. Like, it's a pretty nice... I don't know if it's true or not. 
I think that's something about the High Sparrow that I've always found very interesting, which is that everything he says is very believable. Yes, that's absolutely true. You don't know if he's just saying this because he's helping to guide Marjorie on this path towards total indoctrination, or if it's genuinely where he came from. And it's one of those questions that the show... It doesn't have. It knows it doesn't have to answer this question because it would make it less interesting to know whether the answer is the the monologue he says is true or false. But regardless, it's a lovely story and an amazing monologue. And Jonathan Price, the moment I don't know why it's totally unnecessary and it makes it, but it, it's beautiful. I don't think it's a stage direction that he looks into the camera. And it's yeah. impossible yeah. to keep your eyes off him. And it's like, he's got me with his stare. What's he doing? Oh, and it's like you're being pulled into the TV. Mm-hmm. And the camera, again, I think this is just one of those beautiful accidents where I think that, I think the camera was originally supposed to stay on him at a distance, mm. five or 10 yards away. But yeah. when he looked into the camera, when he started telling his story, the camera, I imagine the camera operator or the director would have just gone, oh, just zoom in, zoom in on that. Just, just, just go with it, go with it, go with it. And then as soon as the camera stops, he looks away. And it's like the monologue is over, tension is broken. And it's like, it's just the guy telling a story. And I feel so tense when oh, yeah. I, it's, it's, I just, I find it so, so, so amazing. I think his look is so arresting and so intoxicating and... If that isn't the point of the High Sparrow, where you don't know if he's telling the truth or not, but God, he knows how to look genuine while he's going on with himself. Then, yeah, I think it sums him up brilliantly as a character. It's my favorite Jonathan Price moment in the show. Um, And it's a bit of a shame, uh, really, because Natalie Dormer is also really good in this. And um, yeah, yeah. The little reunion between Marjorie and Loris is also really sad and upsetting but i just think mm. that it's stolen by how wonderful jonathan price is in the previous scene <laughs> what do you make it, of it? and what do you make of it i mean you you do get the sense you know as like you say he's looking into the camera you feel like this is what the members of the faith militant saw when they yeah. were kind of indoctrinated and brought in and and also people like um like marjorie and like tommen who well, Tommen especially, he comes in all high and mighty and then the, the High Sparrow just sort of, he knows how to diffuse the situation and make him go away thinking that he'd come up with the idea himself, that he'd come to that conclusion on his own rather than been hypnotised by this cult leader type. Yeah, it's, I imagine it's a, a brilliant sample of how so many people have fallen under his spell and I yeah, think yeah. that's the point of the scene, really, which is not necessarily this is the High Sparrow's backstory. It's more hmm. this could be the High Sparrow's backstory, but even if it's a lie, it's a very believable lie. And I, yeah, I just think it's it's awesome. And I think it raises my score for this episode up a 0.5 um, just on its own. I think it's superb. And then I think we, um, we ought to discuss uh, what happens at the... the- Sorry, what was it? The small council. And there's, there's the high council. I don't know what that is. Um, <laughs> well, it's very high up in the tower. But yes, another well, good yeah. scene. Another good scene. Yeah, absolutely. Um, proof again that there is not a Lannister scene out there that can't be improved by the reigns of Castamere 
striking up in the background. Um, oh, yes. The the needle drop of the motif when Cersei says, um, what is it, um, sit back and watch those who challenged us be destroyed. And then she finishes on the destroyed and then it's just a little beat and then a do-do-do-do-do-do-do. And then even Kevin Lannister is brilliant in this scene because he says, many will die. And while the music's yep. playing underneath him, it's like, it just feels so tense and so dramatic. And I, it does. Yeah. And again... Woman on a mission, Cersei. She's got yep. the High Sparrow in her crosshairs and she's not going to stop now. <laughs> it's like, we're going to send that army in and get him. <laughs> it's a bit like um, a sort of role reversal for her and Lady Olena, I think. Because usually um, like we're used to Lady Olena be the one storming in and kicking off the force. Whereas in this mm. one, she's just she's sitting there doing the same thing that Cersei used to do. That kind of slightly smug... Um, vaguely disinterested but just wanting to get that that final jab in mm. but yeah in this moment Cersei manages to convince even Lady Olena that yeah the fake militant needs to be stopped yeah just dangle the carrot of Marjorie in front of Lady Olena and she well, will Marjorie give you an Loris army as well yeah Marjorie yeah. and Loris and yes that and that will definitely secure uh the service of the Tyrell Tyrell army. Um, looking forward to seeing what you make of the uh, the fallout from this uh, small council meeting. Ooh, so I mean, I'm looking I'm forward, looking forward to, to lots of things this season, but especially yeah. like yeah, the the events in King's Landing are just I find them very interesting this season. Um, and do you see what I mean by the way about there being a Cersei before the Walk of Atonement? And a Cersei Absolutely. after the Walk of Atonement. Yeah. And I love the change in Lena Headey's performance. And like you say, she's the one who's kind of going in and barking orders now and getting people organised. And it's like, she's very similar to Sansa, I think. And it's just like, right, enough bullshit. <laughs> I, have, exactly. I have allies with large armies and we both have the same interest. Let's be united by a common enemy, eh? <laughs> yeah, it's like the worst that could happen has already happened. Yes. So... You know, you may as well take action. He broke me into a thousand pieces. I know. You don't know? He sent us one of those pieces. That's why I came for you. Why did you come here? <gasps> Where else could I go? You heard father was dead and you thought you'd claim the crown. <sighs> no, no, I only heard he died after we docked. You happened to show up on Pike right before the king's move. I didn't know. You think any ironborn wants you to be king? After what you've done? I don't want to be king. In the Iron Islands, Theon reunites with Yara, who doesn't seem to have forgiven him for not coming home with her after she raided the Dreadfort in season four. And she accuses Theon of only returning uh, home to seize the Salt Throne after Balon's death. But Theon responds by promising that he will support her claim to the throne rather than pursue his own. Um, Pike has become a very grey and cloudy place since season three. Um, it has. It's just it seems to be constantly raining there at the moment, or foggy. <laughs> I it's imagine like Manchester. Yes, it is like Manchester. I imagine it's because the production team have been able to put some budget aside for weather conditions at Pike uh, this season because they weren't really able to do it in seasons two and three. Um, it's good to have an actual developing storyline at Pike this season. Hmm. We haven't really had a full-on storyline. At Pike before, but it feels like there's one brewing here. What did you make of uh, the Iron Islands and Pike this week? 
Um, just quickly, did you know, um, like you mentioned, women on a mission, and here we have, like, well, three cases, actually, of um, sisters sort of supporting their much weaker brothers. Yeah, yeah. I guess. No, definitely. Trying to drag them through something, make them realise something. Yeah, trying to sort of will them into action, even if they've maybe not given up, but they've, you know, they're more reluctant. Yeah, coming in with the tough love. Yeah. But no, this this is really good to see. And I, I, I do like that they didn't actually go for the whole, because, uh, you know, this episode is very heavy on reunions. They could have, they could quite well have gone for the whole, oh, Theon, I'm so glad you're back. It's like, you know, he's been away for all this time and you tried to rescue him once and that turned out to be a, a disaster in which you lost about half your army. So, yeah, yeah, you would be you would be frustrated that he's come back now just as, um, you know, just as the, the question of the King's move is up for grabs. Yes, um, Theon has not timed his arrival very well there, but no, we know no. he's innocent. Uh, we saw exactly. what happened, but um, yeah, I think that, like you were saying, it's good to see Yara back and involved because it's been a little while since she was. I mean, she was in the episode, um, you know, in the a couple of weeks ago, uh, but she was only in that one scene. But I think before that, she was completely absent from season five. And so, yeah, it's good to have all mm-hmm. these characters coming back into the fold who made the early seasons very rich. And yeah, I think this is part of what makes season six um, overall a bit of a stronger one than season five. I think that there are absences in season five that now they're no longer absent in season six, it feels like the returning of these characters like Bran and Yara and Rickon they bring a sense of momentum and expectation back to the show that yeah. you didn't really feel... You didn't notice it wasn't there in season five, but now that you're really feeling it in season six in a way that season five, you don't feel that same, oh, wonder what's going to happen with this. Um, and yeah. so, yeah, it just makes the show all the more stronger, I think. Yeah, I do kind of wish we'd seen Euron again, but... I guess you can't have it all. Uh, well, he's not going to go away. He's um, oh, no, he's definitely no. in the show now. So yes, you w- you will definitely see him again. Good, I'm glad. You served the Starks. Aye, they put me in chains and put a sword at my throat, so I served them. The Starks have been gone for a long time, but you kept protecting Rickon. You fetched a good price to the right buyer. I served his family a long time, didn't get no wages. Why I see it, I'm old. Be that as it may, Rickon's not yours to sell anymore. He's mine. So what use could I possibly have for you? In Winterfell, Osha is brought before Ramsay, and Osha claims that she intended to betray Rickon and attempts to seduce Ramsay while reaching for a nearby knife. However, Ramsay tells her that he is aware of how she used similar tactics to escape Winterfell when Theon Greyjoy sees the castle and stabs her in the neck before she has a chance to attack him. Uh, that's it. Uh, yep. It's a loose end tied up. <laughs> they brought Osha yep. back to kill her. Um, the one thing that I really love about this scene is that Ramsay even flays the skin off his apples. Yeah. He doesn't eat apples fuck? whole. They take the skins off. <laughs> 
And then oh, at the me. end of the scene, he eats the skin, which is exactly the thing that Osha said about wildlings. Like, do you eat, do you eat the skin afterwards? No. Oh, then I've seen worse. But Ramsay ends the scene by eating the skin of the apple that he flayed. They even flay their apples. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, I, it's, it's such a beautiful sort of little touch in a scene that is not subtle. At all. <laughs> it's just not subtle at no. all. No build-up, no. no nothing. It's just, they brought the actress back for two episodes. Ooh, we just needed to tie this loose end up a little bit. <laughs> Gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, woman on a mission doesn't succeed in this storyline. Uh, what notes have you got? I get what it's trying to do. It's trying to make, you know, give it that sense of, oh, Ramsey might be in danger, and he's obviously not, and... In the end, it seems inevitable. And I've got nothing against Ewan Rian's performance in this. He's still perfect as Ramsay, but there's only ever one outcome on the cards for this scene. And in an episode full of like momentous events and long-awaited reunions, it does feel like a bit of an outlier. And it feels like a moment where you sort of think, did we need this? Yeah, it's kind of there because it has to be they could have put it in another episode but they put it in this one it's like this is where the space was so we put it here it's it's that really mm -hmm. i'm glad yeah. in a way though that they've put it in this episode because there are episodes coming up which mm -hmm. th this this for me this scene weakens the episode yeah but it's surrounded by so much great content that it mm -hmm. keeps the average at a good level still. This is what yeah. this scene and a bit in Viastar Threat that we'll talk about kind of meh. It, the, the episode kind of goes a bit near for me in some places, and Winterfell mm. and Viastar Threat are maybe the two places where that happens. And so I'm glad that if this scene was in the next episode, it would drag the average down of that one and the one after that. And do you know what I mean? Like if they'd have done it in a later episode, I'm kind of glad that it's in this one because it's surrounded by so much good stuff. And like next week is, you know, the episode has a slightly different focus. And so it doesn't really maybe belong there. And so I imagine this scene is one of those, you get this sometimes, you, you do get it in Game of Thrones, especially that they've, they've admitted to it, that like the guys who wrote and directed the episodes, aside from David Benioff and Dan Wise, have said, well, that scene was in my episode, but I didn't film it. Mm. And that yeah. sort of thing. And so I imagine this is one of those scenes where, like, they could have done it to close the episode last week or something like that. Or the, Do you know what I mean? Like, they could have done it immediately after Rickon and Osha were brought back. Or they could have yeah. done it next week because I'm not 100% sure that Ramsey's even in next week's episode. So it's like they had a choice and it was like, well, nah, we'll put it in this one because it'll push it to about 57 minutes. Uh, fine. And we don't I mean, know whether... I mean, yeah. this might be one of those questions answered at a later date things, but I could have I could have just believed that um, Osha would be in the dungeon with Rickon. It's like, is there a particular reason why she's been taken out? Um, what do you mean from the show writer's perspective? Yeah. Yeah, questions will be answered at a later date on that one, I'm afraid. Um, okay, fine. 
I'm uh, I'm the three-eyed raven stopping you from going in the tower. That that's me. <laughs> uh, oh, should we cut? Should we start calling these like the hand on the shoulder? Because whenever the three-eyed raven wants to pull Bran out of a vision that he wants to stay in, and any answers to questions that he might have, the three-eyed raven just puts his hand on his shoulder and pulls him out of the vision. So this is a, this is, this is yeah. a hand on the shoulder. Um, you've been pulled out of the questioning. <laughs> Perfect. In the mold of my million to see me a liar far. Me as a scanner, me hoon, and has a like nest of finchini. The raza hair of honey. Chis to try a dosh calen. Eski silver yunka is a lime. Moribandal and Hazef and Haman. Finia Davrana. Chatnayati Hanavin. Fital and Hazef. Me chis dico varera. Mioske mich kishi. Uh, final location this week is via Stothrak, where Jorah and Dario arrive near the city and discard their weapons to avoid arousing suspicion. Dario accidentally discovers that Jorah's got grayscale, uh, but Jorah's like, oh, it didn't touch you, don't worry. Um, after their mission is almost exposed, they encounter Daenerys in secret outside the temple of the Doshkaleen and try to sneak her out of the city, but Daenerys says that she's got a better plan to help them escape. And later that night, Daenerys stands in front of the, each of the Carls who are gonna be deciding her fate. And instead of waiting for their judgment, she challenges them and provokes them and angers them by saying that they're not fit to rule the Dothraki, but that she is. And when the Carls threaten to gang rape her, she pushes two braziers to the floor, sets the place alight and kills all of the Carls that are trapped inside. And a short while afterwards, Daenerys emerges from the temple completely unharmed. Uh, and amazed and stunned, the Dothraki, Jorah, Dario, they all bow to her, pledging themselves into her service. Um, I could do without the Dario and Jorah banter. It feels like they're, they're bringing the jealousy that Jorah has, Ari, Dario, and Daenerys' relationship. It's like they've brought it from subtext to text, I prefer the yeah. little glances, like Dario leaving Daenerys' chambers at 8 o'clock in the morning and Jorah turning up for a council meeting at, like, 5 to 8. And like, oh, mm. God, you. And I, I don't know if I like that they... I, I, I get that that's what Dario would probably be like and Jorah's, like, trying to laugh it off a little bit. But, I don't know, it just feels a bit awkward and unnecessary. I think that the show has done better versions of this kind of scene in the past where it's like it's the bit where we show the characters bonding before we get to the plot and it's fine but like there are loads of things in it like I do, Dario being like I don't think you could ride the dragon and I, I just don't believe that that's the way Dario would even talk about Daenerys I think that it, just for an example with my partner like if if I was with someone who was had a crush on my partner and was jealous of me, I think my partner would be horrified if she found yeah, out yeah. that I was talking about her in this way. Like you couldn't ride the dragon. I think you you know your heart might give out, and just I don't know. I find it all a bit creepy and unnecessary. And then Jorah does the whole like again this Whedon style. You didn't get much discipline as a child, did you? It's like no, oh, he didn't. And so yeah, <laughs> that scene. Get rid of it. I don't care. Um, but then the the Firestar Thrax stuff. I think I, I enjoy the the rest of it. Like Dario accidentally discovering that 
Jorah's got grayscale. I could give or take the scene with the Dothraki guards, but, you know, that's a better example of a bonding scene between Jorah and Dario, I think, where they understand each other a little bit better after the end of that scene. And then you get another woman on a mission, um, which there are implications at the end of the episode, which, again, maybe we'll talk about. But the scene in the temple is, is pretty is pretty cool. Uh, but what do you make of the, the rescue mission and the reunion in Vice Dothrak? Um, the more I think about it, the more I think it's a bit of a weak point of the episode. Mm. I think I think even the ending feels kind of lol Daenerys wins. You know, like we had back in sort of season three and four. And I, d- I don't know how much I, as, as much as you know, obviously the the like Carl Morrow especially was sort of discussing gang raping Daenerys like yeah that's not okay but it's clear that you were planning this you know inferno long before this this discussion ever happened Mm. and yeah it's just given everything that's happened in marine as well it's like is Daenerys really the person that you'd want leading a civilization or an army or anything it's like you see like if this is the way you deal with problems then maybe that's the point. Maybe they're, they're, you know, the writers are trying to make clear to us that Daenerys, she, she does kind of take these, you know, these quite intense actions in response to a perceived threat. Hmm. But, yeah, I don't know how I feel about it. I think it plays both ways. This show sometimes, especially with Daenerys, it likes to have its cake and eat it a little bit with Daenerys, hmm. where... The moment itself can easily be portrayed as... And I think a lot of Daenerys' storyline up to this point can also be represented as woman becoming empowered and, you know, uh, a woman taking steps up the ladder and becoming very uh, bold. And, you know, she starts out as a child who is sold essentially as a wife slave and then she overcomes that little hurdle... But then hmm. she loses the husband that she eventually, you know, convinces to fall in love with her. But just at that lowest moment, she gets the dragons. And then it's like she's in Karth, gets the dragon stolen from her. And yeah, there are criticisms of Daenerys' storyline up to this point is that it just gets a bit repetitive when she's not in Marine. Because yeah. Marine is the complex beast that she can't tame with fire. That's right, yeah. Everything else up to this point has been Daenerys faced with a hurdle and it's fire and blood is the way out. Mm-hmm. And the show likes to... It likes to make the audience enjoy these moments. And I think that, unquestionably, this is a moment where you are supposed to feel pleased for Daenerys because otherwise they wouldn't characterise the Carls in such cartoonishly evil ways where all they talk about is like, oh we're all going to rape you. And then all of our horses are going to rape you. And it's like, okay, yeah, you're evoking the spirit of Viserys there from episode one. Well done. Yeah. So they're clearly, you know, they they set up these cartoonishly evil villains for Daenerys to swat down with fire. We've seen it with all the slave masters. We've seen it with the Dothraki. Mm -hmm. But there is the undercurrent, which is that 
the characters, I think that there is a purpose behind this, which is that all of the enemies that Daenerys has come across in uh, Essos are some of the least developed and complicated characters in the show. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of the point, which is that in Essos, the it's like slavery is still legal there. And so it's mm. easy for Daenerys to look like this and to look like a triumphant woman who sees the wrong in the world and sets it right. But her methods of doing so, I think the show just likes to leave you with that lingering sense of doubt every now and again, where it's like the music behind Daenerys's actions in this episode are all a bit like, I mean, it plays out like a horror sequence, but it's just that it does. Yeah. We're fans of the we're fans of the murderer in this episode, and that's what the show is really good at. It's really good at making you understand violent actions, and I think that that's something the show has always had and never loses. But it's played as a triumphant moment where just for a second after it cuts to black, you just think, "Hang on a minute, isn't this a bit white saviory again?" Yeah, because like at the end of season three, it's hordes of brown savages taken in by the intoxicating Aryan image of a white woman Mm. with white hair. And it's just, it doesn't take much for the Dothraki to just sort of be like, my queen. I mean, okay, if I saw her... If they just, I'm just thinking, if they'd cut before that, if it had just been them looking on like, what the fuck, what are we dealing with here? Yeah. That would have worked, I think. But it's how it's like, oh, yeah, okay, I guess she's our queen now. Hmm. All right. I mean, I think it works anyway, because I think that if you were to see a woman emerge unharmed from a burning building, I, I think you would be a little bit like, oh, yeah, that that's what? pretty cool. But, like, I don't... Would you, though? Like, <laughs> I mean, because you say... Like if if we're gonna say this is a place where slavery is still legal and this is a place where the masters can talk about gang raping a, a fairly innocent woman, it's like they they surely think her some kind of witch if she emerged from a fire on. <laughs> yeah, I know what I you just, mean. You won't go. Oh, I, this is our new god now. Or or, that, that or it, yeah, maybe it's one of those. It either goes one of two ways, which is that they either think she's a witch or they think she's a god. Yeah, and the show for sake of convenience. You know how I was saying in the second episode where you just kind of have to presume that a coup has been planned in quietly in the background where Ramsay stabs Roos and it's like, everyone's fine with it. This yeah. is another one of those where it's like, you just kind of have to presume that the Dothraki leaders, they just weren't happy with them. And they they much <laughs> prefer this, this lovely white lady who has burnt yep. them all to cinders and emerged unharmed and will lead us much nicer. She's done away with the bad guys who mistreat the women and she saved the, you know, she's meant that the, the, the Dosh Kaleen can live freely um, and not be, you know, chained to this temple the rest of their lives. And yeah. th- that's it. And th- th- they see Daenerys's mission for what it is via the gesture of burning the cars alive that's that's just it's just one of those where like the like i was saying with the Tyrion and slavery stuff before it's just not something the show really concerns itself with anymore it's no it's it's got bigger plans and it's got different plans and it's like th- there is a game of thrones seasons one to four five ish and 
this version of Game of Thrones where it's like maximum soap opera all geared towards big moments and stuff. And this, you know, like I'm saying, there's, yeah. there's great character yeah. stuff to go along with it, but this is just another one of those moments where you just have to sort of hand wave <laughs> for a little bit and just be like, okay, <laughs> that's fine. Um, <laughs> but I think it's it ties the episode up quite nicely, which is that it's a woman not willing to wait around anymore. It's a woman on a mission to get what's hers and to reclaim what's hers and to get, I don't know, revenge. Uh, you know, something that there's a clear goal in mind and it's she's achieved it. And so it ties the episode up quite nicely. Um, I, I always hated the line, you're not going to serve, you're going to die, because it always seemed a bit cheesy, the delivery. But then I realized it's a nice subversion of Valar Magulis, Valar Dehiris. All members die, all members serve. That was pretty... Mm. I, I find that pretty cool now. That was something I only picked up on this rewatch. But yeah, basically, Daenerys just has the Dothraki now, and that's that's it. Just... just That's it. Like, we, we need Daenerys. To, that's basically it. We need Daenerys to have the Dothraki for the show to move forward, and this is how she's going to do it. Um, yeah. There are discussions <laughs> still in the fandom to this day... Um, about how this event might play out in the books if it happens. Some people yeah. seem to think that Daenerys will be freed by Drogon emerging from somewhere and mm -hmm. burning the place down. But I think that the show, uh, they've decided maybe we don't have the budget for Drogon to randomly turn up, so we'll just do it via this way instead. Um, yeah. The image of a dragon may have brought them under her... But I suppose the other thing as well, maybe the Dothraki are bowing to her out of fear a little bit rather than loyalty, where maybe. it's like, if we don't maybe. follow her lead, is she going to do the same to us? But I think these are the questions that the show likes to leave up to interpretation. I think that this is yeah. something that Benioff and Weiss are more inclined to start doing now, where like because it's their show, inverted commas, and their vision they are fans of allowing the audience to project onto images. And so this image of a burning temple with Daenerys... Again, Daenerys, again, it's all wordless and it's all done through expressions and there are lots of things you can glean from those expressions and you can think about in the week until the next episode. Yeah, fair point. But yeah, it's one of those where it's a big celebratory moment for Daenerys and you're you're happy to take it as such, but there's just that little, hmm, question mark with it. So Lizzie, I'm going to ask for your line of the episode. What is it? I'm going to go with Winterfell is ours. It belongs to our family. We have to fight for it. Cool. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. Sansa on a mission. So, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, loser of the week. Who's that? Um, I'm also on a mission to not give it to Ramsay unless I absolutely have to. So I'm going to give it to Carl Morrow this week. And your winner. Winner of the week is Sansa. Yes, um, I think that she has a very, very good week this week and she is not for taking prisoners anymore. No. All right, then, that's it for this week. Next week, we'll be back with season six, episode five, which is entitled The Door. Uh, and yeah, thank you very much for tuning in this week. We'll see you very soon. See ya.